0: Bethany Lee. Hey, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 102. Our guest today is one of the most decorated athletes on the U.S. vaulting team. He has ridden exceptionally well, and now he is teaching clinics all over the U.S. He suffered a crazy injury in 2016, and his story about how he came back and had so much success is absolutely amazing. So I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode. Let's hear it from our guest, Christian Roberts thank you for taking the time. I know a little bit about vaulting, but not a ton. So I am so excited to ask you a bunch of questions, but we'd love to hear about how you first got into the equestrian world.
1: Of course. Yeah. So I'd say the the time I first got into the equestrian world had been through my, my mom had horses her whole life and um, I was introduced to them at a pretty early age from probably around five or six. I just did some basic riding lessons at the the barn near my house with her with my mom's horse and it was around that age I I enjoyed it I liked being outside as I always have and probably always will and I liked being around the horses and you know and taking care of them and stuff but riding for me at that age was a little bit I don't know the the horses seemed big to me then Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was pretty I was pretty small so it lasted about a year and then I took a break from it and during that time I got heavily into gymnastics which little did I know that would Pretty much take over my life for the next six years. So that brings me to about 12 in 2005. Two of my gymnastics teammates, who I grew up with on the coast in the area that I lived in, you know, they had been doing it for a number of years. I didn't know anything about it because I didn't really pay attention to anything that they were, you know, external activities that they were doing basically. So then one day they came to the gym and they asked me to come try it. And I was like, all right, that sounds cool. Gymnastics and and horses, but you get to use music for your routines. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. So I went out to try it and did my first couple lessons. And then they were like, hey, you want to come do a little basic walk competition? And, you know, just I competed at walk doing one single routine and I absolutely loved it. And for some reason at that age, I'd gotten over my fear of like the horses being bigger than me hmm. and it didn't, it just, it, it was just so different from riding that it didn't seem like the same thing. So I was pretty hooked. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Do you remember like what was involved in your routine at the walk? Like a beginning stage. What does that look like?
1: Well, in general, a very basic routine consists at the walk. You know, for someone who's first starting, and of course, at twelve, I was starting later than than most would. But a basic routine at the walk really consists of a lot of safe exercises where you are either sitting, lying down on the horse's back, maybe kneeling sell them a standing exercise because that's you know it takes a lot more balance than being on your knees obviously right and you know some basic transitions from the neck to the back to the croup you know learning to use the handles and the caustic loops to your advantage during your routine and yeah just it was a very very basic routine i can't I even remember what music i used <laughs> but i loved it and yeah, just got me hooked. And it, what really inspired me at that competition was watching some of the upper level vaulters performing their routines. And of course, I was just doing a routine as an individual, just me on the horse. But there were there were other events like team and pata de, deux, which are two and up to three people on the horse at once. And there was a a super high level team competing that year. And I just remember my jaw was on the floor watching what they were doing. So yeah. and of course that was way back in two thousand five. Wow. <laughs>
0: That's amazing. So at that point, you did your first competition, you were hooked. What did that look like for you in, in your schedule and gymnastics? I mean, from the looks of it, I mean, gymnastics can be like such a all-consuming sport. Mm-hmm. Obviously beneficial to be doing gymnastics and vaulting, but what did that look like for you as you started taking the riding parts more seriously?
1: Well, that's that's interesting too because in you know, as coming from a gymnastics background, the gymnastics really helped me progress quickly in vaulting. Mm -hmm. So as a 12 year old, and then the next year, when I turned 13, I was, I was getting more into competitive gymnastics and had just basically started recreational vaulting. So my gym schedule was already, I believe I was doing like four or five days a week at that point, two and a half to three hours a day. Nice. And vaulting had to be fit in on two other days, which I think it was like Monday, Wednesday, for two hours. So I had a pretty full schedule. I was also homeschooled. Basically my parents were like, well, you know, if you want to do all this stuff, you're going to have to homeschool to get your work done and make time to do the things you want to do. So yeah. I, that got me to do all my work very quickly. <laughs> so yeah. I had the, the time to do it all. And that pretty much went on that way for a number of years. I'd say until, let's see, God, that was 2006 until like 2000. Eight-ish, and that's when my vaulting started to take over the gymnastics in a way. As a gymnast, I was like level eight, level nine, and by 2008, in vaulting, I was I had gone up to the levels and was competing at the canter, and was I was improving enough to the point where I could possibly have a shot at a championship in two years after that, in 2010. But we'll get there. (laughs) So overall, schedule was at that point. Lots of gymnastics, not as much vaulting. And then throughout the years, they switched.
0: Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, were you like, okay, I really like gymnastics. I really like vaulting. Or was there like a certain turning point where you're like, okay, like vaulting is it. That's what I want to do for my career. At what point was that kind of your thought process?
1: So the, the turning point was slow up until about 2009 2010 because so so to take it back a little bit 2008 was when my coach was like hey you know the world championships world Question games we're gonna be in lexington kentucky in 2010 and you should try out and i i was like oh yeah, that'd be kind of cool you know yeah. I, I didn't think anything of it at the time i was like that's that's a dream that's far away i'm just gonna keep working 2009 we went to the cvi kentucky test event which was held at the facility for for WAG as a you know as, as a test event for the championships,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so I got to compete in the all-tech Arena in 2009, and it started becoming more real at that point that I could possibly have a shot. And I so my coach at that point, Devin matozo from he's from LA and he runs the face vaulting team or free artists creative equestrians, and he's a world champion in 1998 individually and later 2010 as a squad so he was coaching me at that point and he was like okay if you want to do this you're going to have to work extremely hard and we're gonna have to change your training schedule and all this stuff so that was the the turning point for my training was that and going into 2010 i i competed in the selection trials and by the end of the season miraculously (laughs) ended (laughs) up in third place in the rankings. And all of a sudden I was qualified for WIG at 17 years old. So I was, uh, you know, I really had no idea what to expect because I'd never been to anything close to that size before until then. So off we went and then getting to see the level of vaulting at the world equestrian games for the first time at 17, I was just absolutely blown away. It's like I never Disneyland been, I, for you. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh yeah! And i I'd never seen vaulters from Europe before, and they are at that point. Even then, they were a whole other level. So that was the turning point where I was like, "Oh my god, I can actually do this!" <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's so cool. So, yeah. so you were you were starting to compete. You were starting to see more of the vaulting world, and both in the u s and internationally like people coming and competing, so mm-hmm. what what does that look like? Because I know th- sometimes you are competing as an individual and sometimes you're doing the team vaulting. Can you tell me a little bit about the difference of kind of those two different avenues as you're competing and and like how you prepare differently for that?
1: yeah, of course so there's th- so there's three events in vaulting in the sport of vaulting there's the individual event, obviously, which it's just you uh taught to do, which is which is a doubles event. It's a 2-minute routine with two people. And then there's the squad event which is a team of 6 vaulters and they perform a team a 4-minute team freestyle which is up to 3 people on the horse at once and but can be single, double or triple exercises depending on how the routine's built. So it really it depends a lot on the athlete. Some vaulters are just generally Better suited to one or the other, or they they just enjoy one more than the other. I did individuals primarily my whole life until two thousand fourteen when I first did Poteddu and team as well, and it just was a very different experience. Like you know when you're competing individually, it's just you out there. It's just you, the horse and the linger. and it's very you know you are in the spotlight. It's just you basically. whereas in a squad, it's it, that kind of disappears and you're more thinking about your teammates and doing the parts that you have in the routine as well as you can possibly do them for the whole benefit of the team. So it really the individuality and team a little bit dissolves and you're all working together to create a bigger bigger picture. Got it. So
0: okay, cool. What did your career look like kind of if you could give a snapshot of it leading up to uh, and I want to get to 2016 in a minute Mm because I think that was such a pivotal time for you um but leading up to that what what kind of competitions were you doing what are some kind of highlights that you have in your mind up until that point
1: so until that point I'd say the the first big one obviously was 2010 the world questioner games in Lexington Kentucky and that was just It really just, it was a huge turning point, probably the biggest turning point in my whole career. And it just set me on another path. Like I had changed plans with school. I knew I wanted to go to community college instead because it was close by and I could keep training. Mm -hmm. And then the second big turning point of that, of my career at that point was 2012. And that was the first time I'd competed in a world championship in Europe, which was in Le Mans, France. And that was, for me, that was almost more inspiring in a way than 2010 because 2010 I was just so uh focused on what I was doing at that point and just like getting used to the fact that I was actually at this competition whereas in 12 I was actually a little bit more aware of my surroundings enough to the point to be able to actually take in more of what was going on and get to know some of the people there and actually be able to watch what was going on and and that just, you know, I, I saw some people that I hadn't seen compete until then. And a big inspiration at that point was some of the the French sponsors. And uh, yeah, so uh, to give you a snapshot of my career up until, up until that point, it's basically steady improvement over the years, uh, a very sudden jump in level in 2010. And then just consistently going to Europe, competing, getting my name out there every year.
0: Yeah. What was that what was the process like as you started competing more and more in Europe as far as just like strategically getting horses over there other like members of the team what did that all look like organizing that and getting getting yourself situated to be competing in a different country?
1: That's a it's a tough process if you haven't done it before which yeah. you know basically is everyone who hasn't done it before. And at that point there were not very many resources available to learn how to get involved. It was think about it like a it's like this little club where if you're in the club, you're in the club. If you're not in the club, it's very hard to get in the club. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. um, because you have to know people over there. And if you haven't been there, you generally don't know people. So you have to get to know people that have connections there that can help you out and help you find a horse. So in the beginning and the first time I went over there was for the CHIO Aachen, 2012. Mm-hmm. And I went over with one of my good friends from another club who we both ended up qualifying that year. We went to, because he had connections cause he'd been there the previous year with his team in 2011.
0: Oh, nice. So
1: he already had connections to a horse. So I was like, all right, dude, I trust you. So we went to flew to Frankfurt, Germany and went to the barn that he was at before in, in Lingen, which is, it's in the sort of middle Northwest And, you know, basically the the process is you go over there, you want to have about two weeks training as an American, of course, because we it's very expensive to bring horses over there, obviously. And we've only done that very seldomly for extremely important competitions. So you want to have about two weeks time to get used to the horse, get used to jet lag, just generally get acclimated to the environment. And then I'd say between six and seven practices is ideal so you know every other day or so once you're there and then that is enough preparedness if you train right to be prepared for a championship cool
0: amazing so it's, hmm. let's talk a little bit about horses because I feel like there is you know such a big part you know in any in any area of equestrian sport is the other half which is the horse but especially oh, with vaulting I mean I feel like finding that perfect horse, whether it's, you know, the, the the canter or, you know, just like different traits of horses, Mm -hmm. you know, being okay. Cause you guys are doing such unique maneuvers that a lot of horses might be like, what the heck, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a good fit. <laughs> yeah. So like, what do you, it's what do you look for when you're looking for the ideal vaulting horse for you?
1: And do you, do you, are you referring to, you know, finding a competition horse over there or finding a horse that's untrained?
0: Maybe first like one that w- one that's untrained that you think would be a good fit for a vaulting horse or not a good match as a vaulting
1: horse. Mm. Mm-hmm. So to, to find a, uh, to me, to find a vaulting horse that is, or rather a potential vaulting horse, it really depends on what, who is going to be performing with that horse. Okay. So if it's a lower level or younger kids, generally speaking, the way most people go is to find a very relaxed, mentally sound, like a draft horse or something like that. Mm -hmm. Usually, you know, a Percheron, maybe a Clydesdale, maybe a Shire or something like that is generally speaking, they are big, but as I'm sure you know, they're they're very sweet, docile, mm-hmm. really unfazed by anything. And they that tends to make a very good, safe beginner horse for vaulting. So and of course, on the other side of that coin, as you as you get better and as you progress up the levels, you obviously go from walk to trot to canter. And once you get to canter and you start reaching the point where you are doing more advanced skills like leaps, ground jumps, cartwheels, things like that. Having The the most important thing is having a horse that's consistent on the circle Hmm. and consistent in their way of going. So if you have a horse that's slowing down, speeding up, maybe moving in and out on the the circle, it does make it quite difficult to perform. But generally speaking, in the higher levels, we tend to look for either warm blood crosses, uh, a popular one I've seen for a lot of clubs is like a thoroughbred shire. And at the very, very top level, it's the ideal horse is a very classically trained dressage trained horse and that's anywhere from i'd I'd say first through third is effective you can you can go beyond that in their training as well and but however there's i feel like there's a diminishing um rate of diminishing return as you go Mm -hmm. higher in dressage like the the most important thing is is obviously developing the canter Mm-hmm. and making sure that they're balanced, fit, and trained enough to carry themselves in balance before you put a vaulter on them. And that's right. where dressage training really, really is helpful for revolting vaulting
0: horse. Got it. You might be like, Bethany, this is the, such a stupid question. But <laughs> <laughs> nope,
1: a stupid question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's what people say, but I don't know. Um, if, so, They've never are, seen vaulting?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, are all vaulters, do they also ride and train their horses too? Or are some people like just focus on the vaulting? They have other people exercise riding and focusing on the horse's balance. What does that kind of look
1: like? Most, I'd say most vaulters, generally speaking, have some equestrian background at some point. There's probably a small minority of them like myself who actually didn't really have much you know, I, I basically took lessons and rode around at the walk when I was six years old. I, yeah. To me, that's that for me. That wouldn't I would really count that as like an equestrian background. So I was, you know, came from a gymnast standpoint, and I, I would say a lot of vaulters are also riders, but hardly any riders are vaulters.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. If you if you know the like if you if you're in riding in other forms of riding, like if you're doing dressage, jumping, eventing, whatever. Generally speaking, you're not going to then go into vaulting. Um, okay. it's much more common for them to go the other way and go from vaulting into riding. So for example, my teammate, Haley Smith, she s- did her first dressage competition this earlier this spring, back in early March in Vegas. And she just did like first, I think it was training level one, training level two, something like that. Mm-hmm. And she did pretty well. She was riding uh, the vaulting horse I was competing on at that point, Sir Charles. And he's, he, you know, he came from a heavy, heavy dressage background. He knew at that point he knew more. About dressage, I think, than she did. <laughs> <laughs> Got uh, it. So, okay. it yeah, basically yeah. It's it's vaulters or riders. Riders aren't usually vaulters.
0: Okay, cool. So the, the everyday training, obviously a big part is you like practicing both with the horse and without the horse, but then for the horse is a lot of that training besides, you know, maybe doing like different, like flat work and dressage and working on the balance and, you know, Mm -hmm. overall like straightness of a horse is a lot of that training for the horse done on the lunge line
1: actually it's I would say the 90% of it is done under saddle and that's where I think uh, there's a lot of confusion and, and you know as as a competitor and I've seen this in any time like the FBI posts a video vaulting on Facebook or something the yeah. number one comment I see is like oh my god the poor horse they just go in a circle for two hours yeah. Ab- <laughs> it's absolutely not true and just to like clarify that because You know, a vaulting horse. Obviously, if you were yes, if you were to put them on the lunge line and do nothing else, they would be horribly unbalanced. They they would probably develop lameness pretty quickly. Yeah, and so forth. So, any responsible horse trainer is going to, and I know I speak for like most vaulting clubs in the U.S. um, as a whole. They the the riding is like ninety percent of the training. Mm -hmm. The lunging on, like actual training on a circle is probably another 5% and then the vaulting is the last 5%. You know, our actual rounds on the horse at practice really, I'm thinking about like average actual, like how long am I actually on the horse Uh doing something at the canter? Probably no more than five minutes maybe.
0: Okay. Wow. Yeah.
1: It's really very little. I mean, 90% of our training is on the barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the rest is we just take whatever we learn on the the barrel, which is it's a vaulting training apparatus that has handles basically mimic, mimicking a horse. And then we just take whatever we do there and go to the horse. And we have to occasionally do something at the walk before we do it at the canter. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, so I digress. But for the horse training, yes, flat work and dressage is, is like far and away number one. That they do. And then okay. the vaulting training is just basically an extension of that. As they say, what my trainer, Carolyn, would say is that you're basically just riding the horse from the center of the circle. Yeah. And of course, they, they have to learn to ignore anything that we're doing up there. <laughs> right. That's amazing.
0: I wanted to share a little bit of info with you from our lovely sponsor, the Tried Equestrian. The Tried Equestrian is the ultimate full service provider in equestrian consignment sales. Their mission is to reduce the amount of textiles that end up in landfills and are proud to provide a way for you to clean out your closet while helping make the planet a little greener for us and our homes. So to start consigning, all you have to do is visit triedequestrian.com and request your free consignment kit today. You just have to package up your goods, send them off to the Tried Equestrian, and let them worry about the rest, like photographing each item, marketing the item, shipping the item off to their new home. They do it all. All you have to do is sit back, relax, and wait to get paid. So head over to their website. Again, that's triedequestrian.com to get started. Thank you so much, Tried Equestrian. Okay, let's head back to the episode. Well, let's get let's get to 2016 because mm-hmm. you suffered quite an injury. Can you tell me yeah. a little bit about what happened?
1: Sure, of course. We'll we'll start it off at, in December 2015, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's kind of where <laughs> things started going downhill. Oh boy! <laughs> um, so we came up with an idea to do a a squad for the 2016 World Championships in Le Mans, France, and we we tried. The original idea was to put together an all star team of everyone who was. Like best of the best of that area, from a few different clubs, and in general, it worked. The places where things started to go wrong was when the team suffered a few injuries before mine during December and January, and then later in the competition season, we had you know a vaulter, one vaulter dropped off, one athlete had an ACL injury, followed by another ACL injury from another athlete, and that takes us to about March. So we had to replace three athletes at that point so half the team was new and you know any any team sport you you get to know your team and they're like your family and it's it's tough when you have a basically a new team halfway through the season Mm -hmm. and then you have to create a new routine because it's not the same as it was basically in terms of teammates so leading into the summer competition season we we you know we did okay we pushed through at that point the coach of the team was vaulting on the team because obviously she had to step in uh, due to the the injuries. And then during the summer, that was when she, the the second ACL injury happened. She tore an ACL during a competition. And and this, and also one side note here is that the level and number of injuries that this team sustained is in no way indicative of what is normally Mm-hmm. Uh, normally happens in any disclaimer year disclaimer <laughs> <Yeah>. this <laughs> this is not what it looks like I' also yeah. have to say in here that it is in general a very very safe sport. These were just basically freak accidents that yeah. happened that were just completely unexpected so anyway, at that point we swapped on two more people onto the team and this at this point it was basically a new team myself and one other teammate were the only ones who were the originals of the team, so it was it was rough. And so we finally get to the point where, yes, we qualified. And there was a lot of debate on whether we actually qualified because we basically didn't have the same team we started out with. So mm. there were some allowances that had to be made, I guess. And we ended up in Germany training for Worlds. And, there, and about two weeks before... And it was our, I think our second or third practice in. It was like, it was in the evening. It was just a a freak accident and the horse felt uncomfortable with something that was going on in the back. And I was standing with my foot in the handle and the horse bucked. My two teammates behind me came flying into me, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then my uh, right leg just snapped in the handle and off I went to the hospital. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Ouch. Okay. So
0: you went to the hospital Mm -hmm. I mean, you probably like instantly knew like, oh, this is not, this is not good.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, this, this, also the story behind it is almost entertaining in a way. So my (laughs) coach lunger, Carolyn, who was, who was lunging for the horse at that point, I was, I was on and I felt it more. I didn't hear it more than I like felt it. And I was still on the horse. Everyone else fell off. I was just sort of like kneeling on the horse's Mm -hmm. back. My leg was like through the handle still. And And then I, I felt it after about a circle of cantering carolyn was like what happened she thought the horse overreached and kicked its own foot but that was the sound of what happened basically mm, and wow you know when i i was like oh my god i broke my leg and she stopped the horse in about half a second
0: wow. <laughs>
1: came, came running over and it was it, you know it was a, a pretty big emotional moment for her because uh, you know my, my coach carolyn bland she is a fantastic trainer and she she is from a huge dressage background. she came from Yorkshire and north of England, and she's just a really she's a tough person. she's not one to break down at anything like that and that was the first time I'd ever seen her cry hmm. up until then i I had never never seen her show that level of like you know concern because yeah. we'd been working so hard to get to that point, and that was just such an unexpected kind of catastrophic thing to happen and yeah it was it was rough and i i just remember being in that position and having to having to all of a sudden get used to the fact that not only was i not doing team i wasn't even going Mm -hmm. like i that last two years of training for that championship gone but in a way not gone still there and can be worked with in the future but just it was you know having to deal with the fact that i was done. My season was over. It was yeah. was pretty tough for the first couple of days in the the hospital in Germany where I stayed for ten days. Wow! But the team was amazing. They they came and visited me every day until they left for the championship. And I was able to swap on my good friend Jeffrey Wilson for my team spot and my friend Caleb Patterson for my individual spot. They were both alternates and they took over. Nice. And they did a fantastic job. And you know, I told them, you know, before they left, I was like you know, go out there, do whatever you can do, do it to the best of your abilities. And you know, I I said, I told him, I said, whatever, whatever you do in my spot in the team, I'm proud of you for just even having to do that and stepping up to it.
0: Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that period of time, there's probably so many emotions that you went through and my team
1: went through. Oh,
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For everyone. What was the, I mean, I'm sure you had like surgery and like pins and rods and all oh, of that yeah. stuff. <laughs> what, oh, yeah. what ended up? What ended up happening?
1: So, so after that night, they took me down to a hospital about an hour and a half, hour and a half south of Munich, and which is it was basically on the border of Austria. And it's a, a very, very well known good trauma center. It's um, BGU Murnau. And they get people in from like skiing accidents all the time. So they, they knew what they were doing because I, you know, I broke both bones at the tibia and the fibula wow. and they put a, uh, an instrumental rod down the tibia and they put a plate and six screws on the fibula, which they don't normally do in the U S. So of course, hmm. when I got back, they x-rayed it and they were like, what the heck is that? <laughs> 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 They're like, Well, it's clearly not done here. So yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so you know, I, I had the surgery spent about, 10 days recovering there and then flew home from frankfurt to san francisco and began my recovery and i you know back on my on my facebook page at that point i i posted a status and i was like hey you know i won't be joining the team for the world championships and i'm going to begin my recovery process from this injury and i said i'm going to qualify to 2018 and i'm going to come back better than i ever was and i'm not going to miss a single competition mark my words. Wow. So I posted that and I was like, Ooh, okay. Now I have to hold myself up to that.
0: <laughs> it's on Facebook. It's official. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. And how much time between your injury to your first competition?
1: That was, let's see, August, eight months. Wow. So I I had 6 months recovery and they the doctors told me uh, you're going to be basically no weight bearing except for just the weight of the leg for the first 3 months. You're on crutches, got to wear the boot and all this stuff and then after 3 months I went back for x-rays and they, they looked at it and they said okay, you can you can start walking on it now. Wow. And that was a weird sensation of like putting weight back on it again. It was mm-hmm. really it was nervous and whether you want to or not, you you know, you develop kind of some some PTSD from it and it's you know I I had never experienced anything like that to that extent before so I was I I didn't really know what to expect the next year so November I could walk February I was cleared to get back to training again so I immediately got back on the horse and the first thing I did was go and stand in that same position where I broke it Mm. to immediately start working through you know getting used to that again and not developing a, a huge amount of fear from it or something like that. So two months after that, I went back to my first competition and I made it through the whole thing. And it was, you know, really, it wasn't painful anymore at that point. It was, it was healed. It felt a little weird, a little sore and Mm -hmm. I had to get used to trusting it again, but yeah, it felt okay. and, And then of course, um, Later on, you know it was it was actually pretty tough getting back into team again, which I did you know as as of course we'll sure we'll talk about later, having to get back to used to basing in that same position again with a team with two people on the horse, and that that kind of sent me for a loop temporarily.
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> it was rough. Wow, but yeah, came back from it and didn't miss a single competition, which is exactly what I set out to do,
0: yeah. That's so cool. I mean, how was that for you? I mean, were you still trying to like find ways to like train your upper body? Like, could you do anything, or were you like out for the uh, count until that point?
1: Let's see. Well, oh my. Well, the first month, I would say that was the hardest part. Basically, yeah, I couldn't. I, I really wasn't like allowed to go outside and do stuff because they were worried about like infection and stuff like that from the the wounds. Mm-hmm. Um. So that point, I could basically only do upper body stuff. I did a lot of handstands. I did a lot of push ups. I just like, I'd rest my leg over the top of my other one and wow. just let it support there. And I would just do push ups obsessively.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and you because know, I, I was, when you're stuck, and it's, it relates to this year, I mean, when you're stuck inside the house and you can't leave for mm-hmm. a month straight, you, it, you know, it starts, whether you want to or not, it starts getting to you.
0: Yeah.
1: And it really, It kept me going to feel like I was doing something toward getting better, and of course, compounded with I I was doing PT for the basically the entire time. In six months, I did two times a week, and I told the the physical therapist that worked with me, I was like, you know, I here's my situation. I'm basically a professional athlete, and I need to get back to competition by February. And he was like, well, I don't know, well, you know, if we can do that, I was like, no, we're going to do it. You're going to make me get better. Yeah. <laughs> so, And he's like, all right, it's going to be hard. So, you know, I, I worked every twice a week on that and it was about an hour and a half session, I think. We did everything from like massage and fire cupping to get the muscles and tendons to like loosen up again, hmm. to cardio on the bike, to plyometric exercises with like a band. We did toe raisers, hip stabilization, knee stabilization, everything. Because you really have to stabilize your joints first to make sure that you're not going to, you know, have a, have a ligament or tendon injury, which is, he said, is the most common thing that happens after an injury like that is where people don't do the proper PT Hmm. and then they come back and then they injure something else. So I had to make sure that, that, you know, wasn't going to happen. What did
0: that, what did that first competition back? I mean, you said it was like definitely like a weird feeling, but you got through it. That must've been such a huge relief, you know, going forward.
1: (laughs) Oh, it just felt so good to be to be back in the arena, and also just to be you know in a in a way unintentionally at that point. I didn't realize it at the time, also, but like apparently that was super super inspirational for a lot of other you know up younger up and coming vaulters to see to see that happen. Like mm-hmm. going through this crazy injury, and then the next thing you know, I'm back. At the, I'm just right back in the arena again.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> seriously.
1: And everyone was like, "Oh my god, it's so good to see you back!" And it was it was just very very gratifying and very nice to prove to myself that I could do it. Mm -hmm. And especially after that, after that time period, I was like, you know what? If I can get through that, I can, I can get through anything.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That's such a good mentality.
1: Yeah. You just don't, you don't quit.
0: Yeah. So then we're at what, 2017, what did, what did that following year look like for you?
1: So 2017 was actually when my coach suggested that I, I uh, switch up my individual Individual freestyle theme and and costume and performance to Frankenstein because that was basically what I had become in a way and I was you know, at first I was like okay that's funny. but then thinking about it I'm like oh my god I actually am yeah and it ended up working out really well and it was one of my favorite routines ever but for 20, for 2017 it was a year of not only physically coming back from the injury but mentally coming back from it as well yeah. and that's toward the end of 2017 was when all the the side effects of it started coming through again. There were times where I would get up on the horse and do be doing, it took a lot of Carolyn's convincing to get me to do team again. But, you know, so I agreed and I was like, all right, we're going for it again. So, you know, we'd get back up there with my base and the flyer and stuff. And there were times where I would just like, I'd be like, I, I need to get off the horse. I'm just going to sit here and cry for like five minutes. Yeah. And I don't know why.
0: Wow. <laughs> and, it just,
1: and it honestly, it's that scared me more than, being in that position. Like, I I just didn't understand why I was feeling this way. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so I talked to a couple of sports psychologists and they were like, dude, you got to give yourself a break because you went through some serious physical trauma. And that absolutely has, you know, mental side effects later. And it's, it's basically unavoidable. You can't just block that out and expect it to go away, but you have to work through it. And every day tell yourself that it is if your legs healed, it's one piece again. You can trust it, and so you know. Uh, a couple months through that, things were okay again, and I, I felt I finally felt confident in it to trust it 100 percent to do do my job again.
0: Yeah,
1: awesome. So that was and I think that was October 2017.
0: Because okay. in 2018, some things happened.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> awesome. let's hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> so that fall we had come up with a new a new plan new team it was just it was a team comprised only of vaulters on the pacific coast vaulting team all of us just worked had worked well together previously with that we'd all competed together individually so the beginning of 2018 we started out we know it was going to be a packed competition season we had to go to about 10 competitions that year that summer within about four months wow <laughs> so just one right after another, basically. The first three competitions were three weeks back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. Oh, my gosh. And um, first stop was Washington. Second stop was Oregon, where we debuted our team freestyle. The summer summer kept going, and we we did all the, the competitions we needed to. We went over to Germany for Aachen. Kind of a requirement, because a couple of our teammates on the team had never been to a World Championships before. Okay. So they needed big stadium international experience before a championship so we went to Aachen which is a notoriously rowdy crowd basically (laughs) and it's just the energy in that arena is electric it's so much fun
0: wow
1: so we had to you know get them used to it get them in the ring any one of my teammates they'll all say it was a super super valuable experience and really good yeah and of course just before Aachen I was training in Holland and I I jumped off the horse because I lost my balance, and and of course I jumped straight into a steel I beam and split oh. my head open. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Five days before the competition, so uh. got that stitched up, and it ended up being totally fine. Wow! Yeah, so then you know, come home from come home from Aachen, and that was basically the end of our selection trial run, and we had officially qualified, and we were allowed to post it on Facebook. They'd We qualified, and from then on, it was the the start of our our big preparation and journey for the championship.
0: Amazing. What would you say after you know post-injury kind of 2018 and onward what have been some kind of pivotal points for you or, or some some high points that you you know kind of like look back on as highlights for you in your career?
1: Well the for me the highlights and actually one of the not even a highlight in terms of results or anything like that, but just an experience Um, for me that always stands out was actually, you know, for years and years, there's also the FEI world cup series, which is in the winter and which vaulting is a part of. And for my whole career, I wanted so badly to qualify to the world cup because it's an only freestyle. It's, it's a freestyle only competition. You do two freestyle rounds and they're a minute 20 individual uh, instead of a minute and it just it's like it's like the dream every vaulter wants to do that so yeah. early on <clears throat> since probably 2012 I I set that in my sights to 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 compete well enough during the summer to make it to the top 10 in the FEI world ranking list to make it to world cup in the winter I tried and tried and tried and then 2017 Daniel and I my teammate Daniel James we finally got our emails from the FEI saying that we had been we qualified for the FEI World Cup series, and wow. oh my god, I was so happy! Yeah, <laughs> and that trip in November 2017 definitely stands out as a huge highlight in my career. We we had a horse lined up from France, and we were competing in Madrid, Spain, in the first first step, first leg, rather. And we get a, it's funny. We get a call from the the lunger the day before we left. And the horse had done something was was totally lame, not going to come to the competition. And we were like, "Good, you know, we're going to a country we've never been to, and we have no horse. Oh my <laughs> it's going to go great." Yep. So we show up in Madrid the next day, and we were staying in a town a little outside of that. Um, And it's just, it was such a strange experience going to Madrid because it's basically like California out there in the desert. It looks exactly the same. It totally
0: is like California. That's so funny.
1: Yeah. It was super, super trippy. So we got out there and I was like, "Oh well, I left California to arrive back there eight hours later. (laughs) But, you know, just that whole, the whole experience of going going to Madrid, borrowing horses from the Italians who brought, who the organizing committee paid to bring for the competitors.
0: Okay.
1: It was just a really, really cool adventure, you know seeing just a a totally new place that i'd never been to before it was at the madrid horse week which is a fantastic event and and again we had three competitions three weeks back to back to back next stop was paris and we took a flight from madrid to charles de Gaulle, and met up with some people there that we knew that had a horse and competed in paris wasn't a super great result but honestly getting to go to the Paris World Cup leg was fantastic and and really actually prepared us well for when we came home. Again, this is 17, so we're starting the 2018 training season, really kicking it into full gear there. So we saw so many places and met so many people that trip. That's just like burned in my memory. It's such, yeah. a, such a cool experience. So cool.
0: What would you say is an area of the industry that you are super passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either it just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about?
1: Well, for me, a big part of it that's made a big difference, and what I always like to give a little bit of information and and lecture on in my clinics that I teach is sports psychology. Mm -hmm. You know, having had a couple of experiences where I've really made a breakthrough in that during my competition years, it it just, it just shows how important it is to practice, you know, positive self-talk and preparing yourself well for a competition. And there, I know so many vaulters that struggle with that and so many questions I believe as a whole that struggle with it because it's, you know, it can be, it can be nerve wracking going into a giant, stadium with a huge crowd and loud music and your horse might be a little little frisky. So I, I think mental training and sports psychology is a huge, huge area that is both practiced by a lot of people, but also in the equestrian world definitely needs to be addressed more.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. How often are you teaching clinics right now? I mean, obviously this year is a little different, but...
1: Yeah, exactly. So, well, pretty much because I do some local coaching around here in, in Kentucky, where I'm at, I try to limit it to two clinics a month. So I basically, so a, a clinic is like a weekend training seminar consisting of two six-hour days interspersed with, of course, like private lessons in the morning or evening before the, the group sessions. What
0: would you say are some goals that you have for yourself for 2021? So
1: for 2021, being that I'm not actively competing, any more a goal for for myself is to improve as a coach and to be able to take athletes to the international level myself mm-hmm. I've done that in in collaboration with other coaches in the past, but I personally have not yet had the opportunity to take someone all the way to a european CBI personally on my own and to have success there so that's that's my goal for twenty twenty one is whether or not, obviously, Europe is open or not is a big mm-hmm. question, but 2021 really is improve as a coach, improve my uh, mental training and sports psychology lectures that I can give out to the clinics that I teach and also work on my own progress as an equestrian and work with horses more because, as, as I'll explain in a minute, but, you know, horses have just become such a huge part of my life throughout mm-hmm. my time at Pacific Coast, you know, I, I couldn't imagine imagine anything else so I I do want to learn more about writing and other disciplines as well and just you know get more involved in in a more wide variety of things
0: yeah absolutely that's Mm -hmm. so cool well thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about your life and and where you know the kind of the winding road that got you to where you are today and so just thanks again for taking the time and I wish you all the best
1: Mm -hmm. thank you so much and thanks for having me